This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. To spread grace, speak truth, restart, this is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. Which is no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. What's up, Reverend Butler? How you doing, bro? Oh, I am doing very, very well. Cannot complain at all. How about you? That's good to hear, man. I'm doing pretty well. I got a chance to go up to... Uh, New York City. Uh, yes, what was that? Yesterday, the day before yesterday, uh, to uh, go to Re- uh, Redeemer City to City. So I got to talk at a Redeemer uh, about politics and the church and race and all that good stuff. Man, met some good people. Really enjoyed uh, that conversation. So shout out to the good folks at Redeemer. I appreciate the invitation, and uh, hopefully it's a, a place where we they you know we'll be partnering with them. Um, uh, them them in the and campaign will be partnering. Uh, in the future, but it was a really good conversation. One of the things I wanted to bring up, though, uh, Chris, was something new that we're going to do in the in the new year. And so I want to give people a chance to be a part of it. What I wanted, we want to make sure not only that we're giving you this commentary, but really that we're asking you're answering some of your more specific questions. So what we're going to do is beginning in the new year, if you are a Patreon giver, and we'll give you the details later, but if you're a Patreon giver, we're going to give you an opportunity to ask us questions. And for those folks who who uh, support us through Patreon, you'll be able to he- hear special episodes in addition to the ones we already do where we're answering your specific questions. So if you're interested in that, again, you can go to patreon.com slash church politics and you can give uh, so that you can be a part of that group uh, that gets some of those episodes and gets your specific questions answered. Because I know a lot of you have some things you want to ask us. So I'm really excited about that. As we said before, this episode is brought to you in part by our friends at the Fetzer Institute. Uh, We are excited about that partnership and really have some even more exciting news coming in the new year in regard to uh, our relationship with Fetzer Institute. So thank them so much for what they're doing and being a sponsor of of what we're trying to get done with the Ann Campaign and the Church Politics Podcast in general. But Chris, as you know, we have a lot of good stuff to talk about. So let's get into it. Uh, Grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And let me start off this way, Chris. Um, In certain ways, Chris, our society seems to always be accumulating knowledge. It's safe to say that we know more now in many fields than we knew 100 years ago. And many of us believe the idea that society is always advancing always getting better from generation to generation. We think of societal progress 
much in the same way as we think of technological progress. Technology seems to improve and progress over time. And we're able to do things through technology that we weren't able to do again 100 years ago. So we see this accumulation of knowledge. But Chris, the question I want to ask is, are we also growing in wisdom? Does wisdom accumulate in the same way that knowledge does? Is all the information that we have at our disposal helping us live better and be more virtuous? Some would say that wisdom is the correct application or the correct use of knowledge, which often comes but not always comes from experience. Now, we know that the Bible, my Bible readers know that the Bible talks a lot about wisdom, especially in Proverbs. And we see in Proverbs 9, chapter 10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear in this passage can be interpreted as reverence or respect for God, the type of reverence that inspires obedience. I wouldn't say that this is an age, and maybe you would disagree with me, uh, Chris, but I wouldn't say that this is an age that is known for its reverence for God or for its obedience. But let's dig a little deeper into this wisdom conversation. Uh, We know that Solomon, that Solomon, instead of asking for riches, Solomon asked for wisdom to discern right from wrong and to administer justice. In the New Testament epistle, James said that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Again, we've accumulated knowledge to some extent, but has our society grown in that list of things? Have we grown in wisdom? Are we better at discerning right from wrong? Are we better at discerning fact from fiction? Do we have a better grasp on reality and a better understanding of and grasp on ourselves? Some data might suggest that we might not be growing in wisdom in the same way that we accumulate knowledge. An article in uh, Psychology Today says that there's a precipitous or steep decline in, um, in emotional intelligence which I think ties into the wisdom conversation when you think of the application of that emotional intelligence. Specifically, the new research shows a dangerous decline in levels of emotional intelligence in Western college students. Now, emotional intelligence is a complex construct consisting of four factors, according to this article and the research that they got it from. These four factors are, number one, well-being, self-control, emotionality, and sociability. The factor of well-being encompasses one's positive self-evaluation, as well as feelings of happiness and optimism. The factor of self-control includes the ability to regulate one's feelings, including emotions, stress, and impulses. The factor of emotionality involves relationship skills, such as one's ability to accurately perceive one's own as well as others' feelings and one's capacity to experience empathy. The factor of sociability includes one's ability to communicate effectively, exert influence over others, and build social networks. Now, the authors, uh, the folks who conducted uh, this research, conducted uh, supplementary analyses uh, showing that 
access to technology in each of, of the countries that they were looking at in the West associated with lower levels of well-being and self-control. So our interactions with technology actually lowered our levels of well-being and self-control. The researchers believe social media may be playing a key role in this. Social media increasingly replaces in-person communication, resulting in things like loneliness and, and facilitates social comparison and peer envy. The researchers propose that uh, other factors may also be at play here, such as family instability. So we look at all these things, self-control, well-being, emotionality, and we say with all the knowledge at our fingertips, or without the information, I should say, at our fingertips, shouldn't we be getting wiser too? And I know you, I know you have a similar, uh, had a similar relationship as I did. The wisest person I've ever met in my life was, was my grandmother. Just so wise, so calm, so much of the fruit of the spirit and many of the things that we listed today. Um, and I would say maybe in some instances I've had opportunities to gain more knowledge, but there's still a, a, a huge void when it comes to wisdom. Chris, will you weigh in on this conversation about wisdom versus knowledge, but also just about the the, the real stark problem that we're seeing with our loss of emotional intelligence and how all that plays together along with a uh, scripture. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is a uh, really compelling research that gets after what I think is a big problem right now uh, in our culture. Uh, and it does get down to this idea around wisdom. Uh, I was literally uh, this week, I was talking with somebody uh, and we're, we were talking about this this sort of an idea of genius and getting a lot of information. Uh, and, and I said, you know, a lot of smart people, the smartest people are smart enough to know that uh, most of the available facts are inconclusive and therefore require some faith. And the person I was talking to said, well, that sounds like wisdom. Uh, and it, it really picks up this conversation uh, that we have this significant thirst for the accumulation of facts and not being able to process those facts through through the lens of wisdom is actually very dangerous. Uh, when I look at original sin, we go back to Genesis, you essentially have the devil sort of uh, inserting what seem like facts, right? Like the fruit is, you know, it's it's good to look at and it looks good to eat. And, and so it's measuring these sort of like uh, natural realities, these facts and inserting those facts over and against, like you pointed out, the fear of God, uh, which is the beginning of wisdom, that reverence and obedience for God. And we cannot escape that. We cannot get around that. And somehow uh, in our time, it seems to me that we have, put an overemphasis on the accumulation of facts. Uh, so we, we, we treasure that, we pride that, we celebrate our kids when, uh, when they're able to accumulate a lot of facts uh, and demonstrate their accumulation of those facts. Uh, we pay people for their ability uh, to accumulate facts and demonstrate uh, their mastery over facts. Uh, and very rarely uh, these days do we put an emphasis on wisdom um, and sort of the ability to direct 
our lives in a way that is fruitful, um, in a way that is sort of emotionally and socially uh, and culturally promoting a, a sense of flourishing, right? Like as we accumulate all these facts, I just don't think there are many people who could or even would attempt to stand up uh, and try to make the argument that our world is more beautiful, that is more flourishing, um, that is a healthier and better place for people to exist based on this mass accumulation of facts. And so what I appreciate about the research is that it is in psychology today. It is coming from, you know, from scientists and researchers, but it's really speaking back to something, Justin, that the, that the Bible has been telling us forever and all that getting. Uh, wisdom is the principal thing. So seek to get wisdom and in all of the getting, get understanding. Um, the Bible has told us this from the beginning and we've just departed from it in, in so many ways uh, where we just, we, we don't emphasize wisdom. We emphasize, we celebrate and reward in almost every way. Uh, the incentive is just on accumulation of facts, mastery of facts, demonstrating that you've, that you've mastered the facts. And a lot of folks have all this information, have no idea what to do with it. Uh, and that's, it's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one one of the things about wisdom is okay. We have you 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 said it so well is that you have this accumulation of facts and the value of the cum- accumulation of facts, but do you have a growth in moral character? And when you don't have a growth in moral character that goes along with new technologies and and all this other stuff, you find yourself almost in a worse position. One of the issues that we have in America in general right now is that our technology in many instances, has moved faster and is far is out ahead of our ethics. And so we have all this new technology, but we don't have the ethics to go along with it. We haven't taken the time and grown in wisdom to know how to use some of this technology in a way that won't come back to bite us. And if there's one thing that I've been worried about for quite some time, it has been what happens when technology goes so far that we just haven't we don't even have the time or so far and so fast that we don't even have the time to catch up with the ethics. And our moral character hasn't caught up to where we need to be to deal with this in a responsible way. And maybe that's p- perhaps what's happening with social media and kids and peer envy and all the things that you're talking about in that article. We just are not equipped to deal with these this new ways of looking at of communicating with other people. And looking at ourselves and what does it mean to be honest when you're when you're on social media and you're putting your life out there. Right. And when I look at other people, other people's lives, what's a wise way to view that, uh, which many times is this them just curating what they want you to see. And we all we all do that to some extent. But at some point we have to catch up with that. The other thing that I would want to point out is the elitism that you see in the West. Right. So we're talking about, you know, Western Europe. We're talking about America. It sees the importance in the accumulation of facts, as you were saying before. But to some extent, it does undervalue the wisdom side of it. Right. Some of the wisest people I know, and and you may have this experience as well, Chris, have not been all that well educated. And I think we really and even in politics, this shows up in politics. We follow behind the people on every issue that have that are the most well educated. But it doesn't mean that they necessarily have the wisdom. 
You know, you see campaigns run almost wholly on what people are saying on Twitter, which may there may be some knowledge behind that. But is there wisdom behind it? And is it really connected to the people and what people need for the future? And I think this whole concept of wisdom versus knowledge or how 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 the accumulation of knowledge can go or facts can grow without wisdom really comes in a conflict with progressivism in general, which does see the world as always advancing, that each generation gets better. And you hear people say stuff like, I mean, it's 2021. You still believe that, right? But yeah, there may have been something in, you know, a hundred years ago that they understood from a wisdom point of view that we've lost. And so I think the, the thing about wisdom is it doesn't accumulate in the same way And if you look through history, there were some civilizations that might have been more wise with less information than we are now. And the question is, what do we do with that? Because no class, gender or race has a monopoly on wisdom. And wisdom is not something that you can get just sitting in a classroom. How do we begin to value knowledge? Because we want to value knowledge, too. There's nothing wrong with that. How do we begin to value knowledge and also value wisdom while observing that distinction. Because I think especially when it comes to uh, the, the kind of leadership class, you see the value of, 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 the, of, the, of the knowledge, but they're missing the wisdom and almost overlook the wisdom of people in other classes. And I think this in a lot of ways becomes a class, can become a class discussion as well, right? Where you're missing the wisdom of somebody who might not have gone to an elite university but has lived a life where they where they've accumulated a lot of wisdom and have some skill uh, for living. Any thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's uh, it's it's really key what you just talked about in terms of the elitism. Uh, I'm referencing something that uh, the the superintendent of, of my fellowship uh, said. He was talking about this idea that we are uh, sort of accelerating uh, our children in terms of pushing them to 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 uh, to perfect some levels of competency right so we want them to be competent in everything uh, but we're developing their competency and we're not developing their character um, and when you do that you, you got to question what kind of people we're making for the future uh, so even even how the article talks about uh, social media. Uh, social media has made so many different avenues of information, uh, if not experience, certainly information exposure to at least a discussion around these experiences, uh, much more efficient to to access, right? Especially for young people. But there is not this commensurate uh, spiritual development or character development. And, and I think that's why you see the negative impact, because you have this easy platform where I'm almost automatically uh, compared to everything and everybody. But nobody's really discipled my heart in terms of, you know, what it looks like to be content, right? What it looks like to uh, to even understand contentment and sort of remove myself from comparison, even when it presents itself. Uh, and so with this badly underdeveloped character and being constantly pushed and pushed and pushed to become competent in more and more uh, sort of domains of, uh, of of information, it becomes too heavy of a burden on the soul. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that we're able to talk about this and I'm glad that they're writing about it in uh, psychology today because we have to get back to understanding ourselves as humans as not just cerebral and intellectual beings, but we're actually soulless beings, right? Like our emotions and our character uh, is, is, is very much a part of who we are. And so if, if we have this sort of like competency development, but we don't have the commensurate character development, that's how you have so many people uh, in the world today where we're seeing uh, opioid epidemic uh, spikes in depression, suicide, because you have a situation where the burden on the soul is too much uh, because there's not commensurate development of the character to sort of carry all of this, you know, quote unquote knowledge, this, this uh, gathering of information and facts. Uh, so this is what I see in the, in the research. Uh, now, the researchers don't necessarily start talking about the soul, but this is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and I think that it's, it's an opportunity for us uh, to point that out, that we are soulish uh, beings and you got to disciple, develop the character and the spiritual maturity uh, if folks are going to be able to deal with all this information. No, that's good. I mean, because one of the ways that, that we can think about it is wisdom helps you understand what information is even valuable. Right. I mean, you get a lot of information, but with no with no wisdom, you don't know what information is is even valuable or that you should be using. Something else to think about is it brings wisdom, brings values to the conversation where just more information doesn't necessarily give you certain values. Uh, And if you look at the conversation, you know, even on something like gender identity, many much of the stuff that would some people would say is good information and gives you knowledge. I would say is just a complete lack of wisdom about life and how life works and, and God's design. Just a lack of wisdom to say, yeah, you're coming up with a cute theory and you're using a lot of big words and this may make you know some folks feel a little better, but it's just not wise. It just, it just is not applying any type of common sense to how the world actually works, to human nature, biology, so on and, and, and so forth. One book I would recommend that kind of talks about not just being all in the head or all in our passions either is the abolition of men by C.S. Lewis. He talks about men without chests and I'm not going to give it away. But if you have not read that book, The Abolition of Man, you need to read that ASAP. Another book that I think speaks to the conversation about emotional intelligence, especially in young people, The, the Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And there's another author, too, but The Coddling of the American Mind, if you have not read that, if you have kids or you're in academia or you're in the professional class, especially, you need to read The Coddling of the American Mind. It'll tell you what's happening and how we're weakening people and not giving them the skills and equipping young people, especially to actually live in a world that doesn't become what they want it to be just because they wish it were that way. Uh, And so those are two books that I uh, would recommend. Any recommendations from you, Chris, or anything else on this? I was th- when you said the uh, C.S. Lewis book, I was thinking about the coddling of the American mind. Uh, I think those are, those are two great pieces uh, to pick up, and you know, read through Proverbs a couple of times. You will get a lot of uh, uh, exhortations about wisdom, especially wisdom as it compares to uh, sort of like this sort of general knowledge. And and the, the last thing that I'll say on on the topic is that wisdom is what it is because it is anchored in truth. And truth is timeless and truth doesn't become not true 
just because you don't like it or because you disagree with it. Um, and wisdom, I think at its heart, forces you to confront some of that truth uh, that is timeless and is not going to change for you. Man, I don't have anything to add to that. That's a good way to end this uh, conversation. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Speaking of a lack of emotional intelligence and a lack of some other things, too, a disturbing video went viral a few days ago, which showed Christians. Well, we I don't know if they were all Christians, but let's say they were in a church, some folks that were in a church yelling, let's go, Brandon, during a an event at Cornerstone Church in San Antonio. Now, for those of you who don't know, let's go, Brandon is. It's an interesting story. So basically, my understanding of it is there was this NASCAR race where the where a lot of folks in the crowd were saying F Joe Biden, Joe Biden being the president. And someone asked the reporter what they were saying. And the reporter said they were saying, let's go, Brandon. So let's go. Brandon has been a way, a sneaky way of saying F Joe Biden without saying it. And sadly, we had some folks who were in a church saying Let's go, Brandon, um, in a place of worship. This shouldn't take too much explaining. Um, when we talk about self-control, when we talk about emotionality, maybe even sociability, that was just seriously lacking in this situation. Not only should we not be so partisan in a church and disrespectful in a church, But don't we know that what we say, even if we don't say the F you, don't we know if we say something equivalent of that or something that's making up for that, it's just as bad? Doesn't the Bible tell us to watch our words? Aren't we supposed to have a certain kind of reverence when we're in the church, in the sanctuary? The idea that anyone in there, a bunch of adults, that there were a bunch of adults in a church And not enough of them had sense to say, hey, guys, this isn't the place to have that conversation. We shouldn't be yelling that out in the church. This says a lot about where some of us are in society when it comes to really the polarization and the contempt we have for other people. I don't think any Christian should be saying, let's go, Brandon, uh, knowing what it really means in general. But especially in a place of worship, man, I don't. You know, there's only so there's, there's only so much you could say about that. I mean, so many ways to describe how sad of a situation this is. But I'll pass it to you, Chris, and, and just get your thoughts, bro. Yeah, I mean, one, I, I want to just say that was a, a great uh, transition uh, into this topic. But it, it is a lack of emotional intelligence. I don't know. Like, if, if you want to do, like, a Let's Go Brandon chant somewhere, I'm probably not going to be participating in that. Doesn't seem like the very best way to voice protest uh, or frustration with uh, the president and his administration, what they're doing and what they're not doing. And and let me say, this is not to say that I don't think people can or should voice uh, that kind of frustration uh, and opposition to uh, the president. 
as Americans, this is one of the very precious rights that we have, that we can voice our opposition uh, to uh, the presidential administration. One, certainly not the, you know, the original chant that gave us, let's go, Brandon. That's vulgar. That's not how Christians should be voicing their protest. Uh, because of that, let's go, Brandon, uh, calls to that vulgarity. And so to me, it's probably not what Christians should be using to voice their protest. But then to bring that into a, a house of worship should be obvious that, you know, let's not do that in a house of worship. It, it just goes again to the kind of concepts that you'll read about in the book that we suggested in the Continental American Mind, right? Um, there's a way to do this, right? Like, it's not that you can't protest. It's not that you can't be frustrated. It's not that you can't voice that protest. It's not that you can't voice that frustration. But there's a way to do it that is going to produce a lot more fruitfulness uh, in terms of, like, uh, the example that you're setting for younger people, the ability to actually engage with folks who may have disagreements with you on the actual issues of policy, administration, uh, therefore. Uh, and, and I would have to say to just not make yourself look a little bit silly. I mean, one of the things that we should have as the church is, is at least something of a moral high ground where we're able to say, like, you know, there, there are certain things that we just don't do because we don't do them. There's a level of respect that we can get in the public domain just because of that. And when you start doing this kind of thing, I think you start trading away really important aspects of who we are, just generally who we are and who we're supposed to be before God. But also that that public witness is damaged, I think, every time something like this happens. Yeah, a complete lack of wisdom, a complete lack of reverence. In fact, allowing your contempt for the president or anybody else or whatever party to overcome your reverence and love for God in in a in a place of worship. It, it's sad. And it does cast an, an ugly uh, shadow over, you know, the church, because that's what people are going to show over and over again. Right. We saw this. Uh, clip over and over again. I think it's fair to say, Chris, and maybe you disagree with me. There are very few churches that would allow this to happen. I believe I, I would go so far as to say most very conservative, ideologically conservative churches aren't going to do this. I could be wrong. Maybe y'all out there would disagree with, me, gr disagree with me, but this is still what people see. And in fact, someone took the opportunity to, to, to make that comment. So uh, Congressman, uh, Joaquin Castro uh, took this opportunity really to attack to attack organized religion in general. And this is what he said. He said, this is not a church service. It's a political rally. It's also a prime example of why more people are turned off by and leaving organized religion. So maybe he'll get some extra donations from that or whatever. But this isn't something that is regularly happening in organized religion, in Christian churches. But it is an example that we need to point out just to make sure that it doesn't start to happen more often. Uh, I don't think most of the people I know, even if we disagree on politics, aren't going to let it go down like this in their church if they know, you know, if they really know what's being said and what it means. And maybe some people didn't, but there are people in there that did that were repeating it and that should have known better.
we've got to make sure. And this is we talk about that, you know, this brought up a conversation about the relationship between church and state. Should this uh, church still be treated as a nonprofit when they're obviously doing things in the church that that seem very political? And those are questions that, that people are going to ask. But even bigger than the separation of church and state is the separation of this type of foolishness and contempt from the church, from Christians in general, even outside of the church, I would say from Christians in general, something some things just shouldn't come out of your mouth. Now, everything that's coming out of my mouth has not been great. So I'm I'm not going to be the one to tell you guys that uh, we all talk perfectly and never say anything vulgar. We certainly should try not to. Right. But to chant something like this in the church. Just goes far beyond anything that's acceptable for us to do. And I hope most people see this. I, I believe that this isn't going to happen in most churches, but it shouldn't happen in all happen at all because it gives people like the congressman an opportunity to put this on all Christianity and, and, and act like it's something that, you know, that we would all accept. Go ahead, Chris. I'll let you take us out on this one. Yeah. So the one other thing that I would just exhort us to uh, and Justin, you were just talking about this. Most churches are not going to have this happen. Um, And some people are going to send out an email, put out a tweet uh, and try to generalize uh, this uh, so that they can raise money, get Twitter likes or whatever. I would sort of exhort us to be slow to try to fly to the defense of this activity. Um, You know, sure, you know, let's make clear that vast majority of churches are not going to be doing this, but some stuff we just don't try to have to rationalize and, and defend. Uh, it's, it's wrong. Shouldn't happen. Uh, just let it be that. I couldn't agree more. We will be back on the church politics podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. All right, so Justin, you know uh, that my wife gave birth to our youngest son, Azim, almost two weeks ago. Um, And you also know, being a dad yourself, that uh, newborns can bring a lot of late nights and early mornings walking the floor and rocking the baby. And if you're me, reading something on your iPhone. And so it was doing that, actually dealing with my little baby, that I actually came across something that's a little bit disturbing, I think, in the uh, Build Back Better legislation, uh, which I think a lot of folks who listen to this by now uh, know is sort of the second 
plank, uh, major part of the president's, uh, President Biden's sort of agenda. Uh, and this, this disturbing piece is in the child care uh, provision. Um, so Democrats are going to vote on this, at least they plan to vote on this in the House of Representatives this week. Tomorrow, maybe they'll be voting on this. Uh, and there's a piece of this that just isn't going exactly the way that I think it should. So uh, Rachel Gressler, uh, she's a researcher at the Grover M. Herman Center at the Heritage Foundation, uh, writes in the Chicago Tribune uh, this, by establishing a new right to, quote, top tier child care, uh, it seems that the program will make child care accessible and affordable, but not so fast. A lot of strings are attached to the new program, strings that will drive up cost and ironically prevent the majority of current child care providers from qualifying for government subsidies. Uh, she goes on to say perhaps the biggest failure of the new child care entitlement is that it treats providers that accept subsidies as recipients of federal financial assistance. That's a really big deal because unlike current child care grants, it means that faith-based providers cannot operate their programs or hire their staff based on their beliefs and their mission statements. No more prayers for thanks before meals. No talking about Judeo-Christian accounts of creation. No religious foundations that include things like teaching kids about sharing, telling the truth, and being kind to others. Now, I know that this is a, a Heritage Foundation report and that faith-based education is not always in vogue in the most progressive circles. But when you consider the fact that only 31% of parents currently use center-based childcare, only 31% currently use center-based childcare, and out of that 31%, 53% of them are actually using faith-based centers. This becomes really troubling. You see, essentially, we're asking the small community providers, the faith-based providers, the home-based providers to quickly and dramatically change their business models in order to receive these new subsidies. Uh, and, and the problem with that is that these are the very providers who have been in the trenches providing care for low-income families for decades. Uh, when you drive around the south side of Chicago, uh, you see these home-based centers, uh, these small community-based centers, these uh, centers that are adjacent to churches, uh, and all of these folks are going to be harmed by this. Uh, it really gets to one of the Achilles heels uh, issues, I think, for the Democratic Party for a while, but we uh, especially saw it in a big way in this most recent Virginia election. And that is the disposition, a sort of disposition that parents and families do not have the capacity to discern what educational opportunities work best for their own children. Now, listen, I know that there has to be some consideration for the level of quality that goes into education and childcare, especially if we're spending tax dollars uh, on creating these opportunities. But we have to be able to trust families to make that decision for their own children. And in an attempt to be overly prescriptive of what quality looks like, it's very likely that this bill is going to actually limit the choices that low-income people have for childcare. It's going to double the cost 
of childcare for many families uh, who can access those limited options. And all of this is going to happen because we're going to pull the carpet out from under the very people who have been doing for decades what the bill uh, is supposed to do, which is provide uh, childcare for low income families. I think we have to find ways to empower parents uh, to access childcare and still trust them to make decisions about how they access it and where they gain that access. Uh, so certainly interested, Justin, what you think about this. I thought it was it was uh, just a, a really important thing to point out and something that we see in these sort of big programs a lot. And, and you know, you know, we've talked about this a lot on this show. I'm not against big programs. I'm for big programs. Um, but I think we got to find a way to provide them without uh, undercutting uh, the ability for the people closest to children and families to make decisions about what they need in terms of education and care. So, Chris, basically what you're telling me um, is as written, faith based providers will basically be excluded in many instances from receiving funding unless they change their convictions. Is that what I'm hearing? Pretty much. Yeah. And unless they change their convictions, change really their whole model. Yeah. So again, and this is something, you know, don't be surprised if you hear the end campaign speak up about this a little more. Uh, that's my reading as well. In addition to this being paternalistic, again, we're not even helping the people that we say we're supposed to be helping by 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 unnecessarily changing how how this works. We're going to be excluding people and giving parents less options. So if you have a Christian school that's the closest to you, that you have relationships with people, that you like what they're teaching, you can't go there. You got to find some other place where you may have no relationships, don't really, you know, don't really aren't all that enthused about what they're what they're teaching or how they're teaching because of rules like this. And we just have to do better. This is part of the reason. And and I know there's going to be a lot of Democrats who are listening to this who are like, hey, we just need to get this passed because the Democrats are supporting the passage of this. This does not need to pass as is. This needs to pass, in my opinion, and some people would disagree with that. There's some some arguments about inflation and what can it, it can do with inflation. Even for somebody who who appreciates the idea of, of some of the, the policies that are going to be uh, part of this uh, uh, legislation, as is, it does not need to pass and there needs to be some changes. And even within your party, even when your party is the one proposing something, Sometimes Christians and folks with different values have to stand up and say, no, you need to make changes. And I believe if Christians stand up and make that statement, changes will be made to legislation like this. But again, it's not helping the people that it needs to help in the best way possible because of this paternalism, because of these changes in the rules that are really unnecessary because parents can make those decisions for themselves. Uh, and, and we don't need to we don't need to do this in a way that's excluding so many good educational providers that care for kids, that take care of all kinds of kids. But also, guess what? Have convictions, too, that they want to stick by. And in many cases that the parents appreciate. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better. You know, it, you're limiting the options for parents. And I, and I can't say enough about how you're undercutting uh, the folks, Justin, these home home care providers, uh, home daycare providers, and uh, a lot of the these faith-based providers that are adjacent to churches. Like, I, I don't know how it is in Atlanta, but you drive around the south side of Chicago, you're going to see, you know, 
ABC Learning Center and Tiny Tots. Uh, and you, if you're in church, you know uh, that sister who has that home daycare center where she's taking care of uh, 10 and 12 kids. These folks have been out here figuring it out as business owners, how to keep their um, prices down and keep their quality up so that they can serve these families long before uh, Build Back Better came in to save the day. And again, I'm not against Build Back Better. I think that we should be providing some subsidies so that more uh, families are able to access uh, this care so that those those providers can uh, pay their employees a little bit more. But to be so prescriptive about it, we're actually going to undercut these folks who have been out here doing the hard work with no, virtually no help from the government literally for decades. Outside of the fact of the paternalism and the difficulty with all that, it's, it's a, a double slap in the face when you think about all these small business owners and uh, faith-based institutions who have been doing this work for decades and are all of a sudden going to be undercut. Very good points, guys. Uh, we need to take a, a, a much harder look at what's going on here. This needs to change, and I hope the people that are leading this effort will have the emotional intelligence to make the the correct uh, amendments to this, because this is not going to serve uh, the people that like in the ways that it should, especially when we talk about the other thing is that they are going to add the salt deduction. And we talked about the salt deduction on here before the Democrats are basically giving a huge tax break to very wealthy people that are usually going to be in places like California and New York. Uh, they're going to be able to deduct their state taxes from their federal taxes. And guess what? From my understanding, that tax break is enough to almost fund the child tax credit for a whole year. So we're complaining about funding, but then we're giving we're putting into this a tax break that would be able to fund some of these programs for a whole year. It just doesn't make sense. You got to be willing to ask questions of the tough questions, even when you generally might like the idea of a legis- of this legislation. But it's too big to get wrong. And we need to make sure that we're pushing back. Because faith providers, faith-based providers should not be excluded from any of this stuff. Anything else on that uh, point, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I I think you said it so well. And just to point out again, if we don't say anything, people can assume that there's nothing wrong. Uh, I think that we would be surprised to see uh, how responsive, especially on this particular vote where the the margins are going to be narrow, uh, you'd be surprised how responsive folks would be if believers just actually raise our voices and say this needs to change. It's not acceptable the way that it is. Well, there it is. It, this is another episode of the Church Politics Podcast. I hope you appreciated uh, the commentary that you got today. Thank you all for our support. Remember that we are going to start next year. If you're a Patreon a contributor, we're going to start answering your questions specifically on a uh, on a separate uh, it'll be the same podcast but just separate episodes so if you want to be a part of that please give on patreon.com as always and camp there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear there's a civic witness in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world politic with the boldness and compassion of jesus christ until next time and camp we'll holla at you I said, King.